Rome is called the Eternal City for good reason. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, I've invited some Roman tour guide friends to provide us with insider tips to better understand what for centuries has been the beating heart of Western civilization. More than probably any place on Earth, in Rome, tourists walk upon layers and layers of history. Dig down, and you reveal 25 centuries. This is something about Rome that I think is extraordinary, that so many of its riches are outside for you to see every day. Rome-based tour guide Francesca Caruso joins us for the hour ahead to help bring meaning to the magnificence that's all around us and under us when we visit Rome. We'll also check in with another local guide whose family has lived in Rome's now-trendy Jewish quarter for 2,000 years and with a man who runs a small family-owned hotel in the middle of the city. Stay with us as we examine Rome beneath the surface on Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe, researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Rick Steves' Italy is America's top-selling Italian guidebook. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find the guidebooks for Rome, Venice, Florence and Tuscany, and Rick's Italian phrasebook. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for Italy and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com. 2,000 years ago, Rome had a population of over a million people. And today, you dig anywhere and you stumble into ancient Rome. Today, we're looking at Rome under the surface. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And I'm joined by Francesca Caruso, my favorite guide Buongiorno. 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 Come va? Bene, tu? I wish I spoke Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Francesca is so good at bringing Rome to life. And today, we're going to talk about dead stuff. We're going to go underground and we're going to look at what Rome was like 2,000 years ago. It's amazing, isn't it, that uh, the city had a million people. Is that right? Yes, it is, in fact, the first city in the entire Western world that reached a population of one million already in the first century. In fact, the latest estimates say that it was even more than that, possibly one million two hundred thousand. Imagine what it must have meant to provide water, housing, food to over a million people at that time. So when you think about it, ancient Rome had all this masterful plumbing, 11 aqueducts bringing something like the equivalent of 320 Olympic-sized swimming pools of fresh water into the city every day. They said the Achilles heel of Rome, if you were in a barbarian trying to storm the city, would be simply break one of the aqueducts that come into the town, and that would stop the water flow. Which is what they did, and that forced the uh, people to go to the River Tiber for their drinking water, and of course the sewage ended up in the river, and that is one of the causes for which the population dropped from the famous million down to maybe even 20,000. So when you think about Rome, sometimes you don't even realize you're celebrating the ancient city's engineering design. You go to the Trevi Fountain and you throw a coin and you want to come back. But that fountain was built to celebrate the renovation of a plumbing system that was quite old. Is that right? Certainly. That is where um, one of the famous 11 aqueducts actually ended into the city. And it was already a habit of the ancient Romans to have something beautiful and significant where it ended. So when over time the popes finally restore or sort of recreate the ancient water system, they do it um, basing themselves on something that already existed, as always happens in Rome. You use what's already there. You create on what already exists. So this uh, spectacular fountain from the 1700s uses water from the aqueduct from 2,000 years ago. So that is a Roman thing, isn't it? I mean, there was such a huge infrastructure given by the Romans. I mean, if a Roman came to the United States, what they'd probably want to see is a freeway interchange and a, and a great water system because they had engineering in their in their blood, it seems In their like. blood. That's very true. And this is why theirs is probably the ancient civilization that's most visible and most tangible on the landscape. Wherever you go in Europe today, from England to the Middle East, you find remains of their infrastructure. And, yeah. and the Roman civilization is the civilization of cities. 2,000 years ago, the word Rome meant the entire civilized world, didn't it? Yes, really, from uh, from Britain to the border of Iran, really. The Mediterranean Sea was called Our Lake. Yes, Our yes. Lake. And think of the variety of, uh, of beliefs, of traditions, of languages that coexisted. And when you get a chance to go to Rome as a tourist, you get a chance to burrow down and see what's going on. I was just at the Colosseum. They told me there was an underground passage to the barracks where the gladiators were staying. Certainly. The barracks are the the most important uh, gladiator school in Rome called the Ludus Magnus, the great game, it means. And absolutely, the gladiators could go from their living quarters to the arena without going out into the streets. They would come up 
directly, practically at the arena. Was that to protect them from the public and the paparazzi? But also, who knows, maybe also to prevent them from escaping. You know, okay. A lot of people were gladiators against their will, so who knows? So they would sleep in their dormitory, mm-hmm. and then they would get ready, and then they'd go on an underground passage, and then they would emerge from the floor of the Colosseum in kind of elevators. See, the elevators were used uh, also for the animals. They had a special entrance called the Door of Triumph that they entered through. And like a bull enters in a bull ring almost. And yes, and in fact, on the opposite side of that, if they died during combat, they would be carried out of the opposite door that was called the Door of Death. Wow. And they didn't get to fight very often. It's less than we think. It was apparently at the Colosseum no more than three times a year. Now, when you're in Rome, you see the Palatine Hill standing above the Forum, and the Palatine Hill is where we get our word palace, right? Yes. And today you see the foundations of all those palaces, those original palaces of the emperors. You see the ruins of the, uh, yes, what's left of the palaces of the emperors that were built practically over Republican homes. The Palatine Hill, I think, needs to be imagined a bit like a honeycomb. And as usual, everything in Rome is supported by something else. There's always another layer of life and I history. I love that. You under, dig down and yes. it's like peeling back. And you mentioned Republican, so any tourist needs to know the basics. Rome lasts 1,000 years from 500 B.C. to 500 A.D. The first half was the Republic, and the last half was the Empire. Absolutely. So if there's an emperor's palace, it would be during the what you would call the Empire period? Yes. And if there was something underneath that from earlier, you called it? From a Republican period, so Republican homes. Even before Republican, you dig under the Republican homes on the Palatine Hill and you find the little Iron Age huts of Romulus and Remus. Yes, because according to tradition, the Palatine is where Rome was founded, and probably that is also why the palace of the emperors were there. No, they wanted to be like the new founders. Oh, so you want to build your house on top of Romulus's house. Exactly. And Symbols Romulus are important. wasn't down there in the forum where the, the sort of the common grounds. He was probably safer on top of the hill. Is that right? Yes, safe from attackers, safe from the floods. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I love talking with Francesca Caruso. Francesca, you don't sound very Roman, but you've lived all your life in Rome, haven't you? Yes, I was born and raised there, but I had the great fortune that my mother is American, and she moved to Italy before I was born with my Italian dad. And so I was raised speaking only English to her and only Italian to my dad. So as I always say, grazie mamma for my English. <laughs> grazie mamma. And that helps you. Can You've got this wonderful mix of ability to communicate and Rome in your blood. And as a tour guide, that must be a joy to share. It's a wonderful thing. And also, I think that having been raised by a, a non-Roman in Rome, I think has uh, taught me to look at my own culture from the outside. And I think it adds a lot of perspective. I have the impression that a lot of people who live in Rome, who were born in Rome, see all those marvels every day. Because, you see, this is something about Rome that I think is extraordinary, that so many of its riches are outside for you to see every day. When you go to work, you drive by the Colosseum. But maybe if you drive by it every day, then in the end you forget to really be aware of it and see it. And if you're a local who knows what's going on, you know the Colosseum is named for a big statue, the colossal statue of Nero, right? Certainly. Parts of it were discovered, rediscovered, I would say, after centuries of oblivion in the 1400s. It was open to the public in the uh, 1990s, you're right. But they've had such terrible structural problems there that they've had to uh, really limit access to visitors today. The Domus Aurea, the, Nero's the golden, golden house. house. Yes, golden exactly. House. Now, Nero exactly. was sort of this megalomaniac, and he had this huge statue of him in front of the Colosseum. Which at the time of Nero was a lake, an artificial okay, lake. Okay, so that the was statue the... preceded the Colosseum. Yes. And megalomaniac Nero filled in the lake. Well, was... the lake was part of this palace. It was on the grounds of the palace. And when Nero died, they wanted to erase the memory of this ghastly okay. emperor. And so they drained the lake and built the Colosseum in its place, returning to the Roman people. Oh, what people's the emperor... triumph over the of bad course. emperor. Uh, well, it's all about communication in the end, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Now, we call the Colosseum the Colosseum. Did the ancient Romans call it that? No, they called it the Flavian Amphitheater. Flavian, from the name of the dynasty of emperors who built it. Amphitheater is a Greek word for Roman invention. It literally translates double theater, and amphitheater is very simply two Roman theaters back to back. So this was, to me, an example of Roman engineering genius. You have a theater where X amount of people can see an event, And if you want 2x amount of people to see the event, you put another theater onto it and it becomes a circular theater, an amphitheater. 
So what, uh, 50,000 people in the Yes, 50,000, 60,000, absolutely. I wouldn't stretch it wow. to more than that. That's pretty impressive if That's you think about impressive. it. What, the exits were called vomitoriums, right? Yes, Tell because it was that. like, well, because it was like a big stomach that at the end of the day just sort of emptied out. And it took uh, maybe just uh, 20 minutes or so because getting everybody out of there very uh, rapidly and efficiently was fundamental because, you know, the audience was given a tremendous amount of free wine throughout the day. You want them to get the heck out and go home without yep. any disturbances. Exactly. And if there was a disturbance, it might be um, remembered in the tabularium. Now, nearby, a 10-minute walk away, you've got the Capitol Hill, where historically the capital of the, the city would sit, the city hall or whatever. Is that right? Well, the Capitol is actually is it is where the most important temple in the city used to be. Remember that the political activities in the, uh, in the Republican period are in the Roman form. But the Capitol Hill is where the most important temple used to be. But under that, under that the is Yes, the tabularium that dates from the first century BC and was the public archive of ancient Rome. So wow. the Romans write everything down. They're practical, right? So they build roads and they write things down. They record for themselves and for posterity all of the events. And they documented everything, an eclipse, a flood, famine, wars, laws, everything. You know, we even had a newspaper back then. Must have been a windfall to find that. If they could read Latin, they could read, literally, the account of ancient Rome. Well, I think you, you really touched on something important. I think sometimes we tend to forget that it is much, much easier to get close to the ancient Romans intimately because we can interpret their language, and we always have. Until very recently, any educated person studied Latin in school, so it's not like hieroglyphics or other types of ancient writing that we need to interpret or we needed to find the key for it. And then the knowledgeable tourist knows when you walk through the Rome, you see the echo of the ancient city. You go to Piazza Navona, it's shaped like a long, oblong racetrack. Why is that? Because in antiquity, there used to be a stadium there called the Stadium of Domitian that was used for athletic events. Then, with the fall of the empire, what happened is that the river Tiber flooded all the time, so it filled the ancient uh, stadium with mud and silt, and people used it as what? As a foundation for their own homes. So they started building homes on what had been the seats of the stadium itself, and some of the little streets that lead into Piazza Navona actually are the entrances, for example, of the athletes. The passageways. Underneath the, the stone foundations to the bleachers, which survived the floods and provided the foundations for the medieval houses that you get your Tartufo chocolate ice cream out of today. In modern times, they dragged away all the extra stones and they created a beautiful Baroque square, which is a night spot today for people enjoying the magic of their hometown Rome. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Rome under the surface with Francesca Caruso. Tell us how you've been inspired in your travels in the form of an original haiku poem. The radio section of our website at ricksteves.com has details on how to send us your submissions. Here are some recent examples of what listeners have sent us. Anita Barnard from Fort Worth was in Italy in the summer of 2006. Here's her haiku about the siesta. July in Florence. Hot like Texas. No shopping after lunch. Just sleep. That summer also happened to be when the country was consumed with World Cup soccer. Anita tells us they could hear cheers at every goal during dinner, were offered free champagne at a gelato shop, and were caught in the closed streets of Rome by the victory celebration when the winning team came home. She wrote this haiku called Fountain Celebration 2006. The Trevi at night, filled with art, young men's bodies. World Cup, Italy victorious. With its many intriguing layers, we're exploring Rome beneath the surface, today on Travel with Rick Steves. Joining us is one of Rome's best local guides, Francesca Caruso. In a moment, we'll check in with another Roman guide to explore the city's historic Jewish ghetto. And we'll take your calls, too, at 877-333-RICK, as you tell us about your experiences in Rome.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're underground in Rome, meaning we're looking at Rome's ancient history. In the building I'm in right now, you dig down three feet, you got dirt. In Rome, you dig down three feet. You're just to the Baroque Age, aren't you? (laughs) Then you got to go to the Middle Ages. Then you got to go to ancient Rome and something before that. 500 years before Christ, it was it was Etruscan, wasn't it? Yes, was the Etruscan king certainly? Yes, there's always there's always something else under the surface. Always dig. Always, always. Well, we're digging Rome here with Francesca Caruso. In the first century, Peter was uh, martyred in Rome at a chariot race course, right? Yes, yes. Sort of halftime entertainment. They would kill a Christian. And uh, then his followers took him up to a little hill called the Vatican Hill, where there was a cemetery, and they buried him there. And for two or three centuries, people worshipped secretly on Peter's tomb, practicing their Christian faith when it was not the legal faith. Suddenly, 309 or something like this, Constantine becomes a Christian, and you can build a big church on top of Peter's tomb. Yes, and of course you realize the symbolic significance of building a basilica on top of the tomb of a first leader. After all, Peter is the first pope, so symbolically that became very, well, just fundamental. Everything at the Vatican is based on this. In fact, you look at the obelisk in front of St. Peter's Church, and you've got an ancient Egyptian obelisk, and on the top of that, you've got a cross. Yes. Reminding that the Christian Church conquered the ancient world. So there's some fascinating tour opportunities there if you're interested in the history of the early church. We have John on the line uh, from Springfield, Illinois. John, thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. Good to talk to you. you you've actually toured the uh, tomb of St. Peter, is that right? That is correct. I've had the opportunity to do it twice. Now tell me, it takes a little um, preparation. You have to make a reservation for this in advance. Tell us how that works. Oftentimes you can make the reservation yourself by going to a Vatican website. Uh, it's called the uh, SCAVI office. You can request tickets through that SCAVI office. They are restricted, uh, somewhat difficult, but if you persevere, oftentimes you can get those tickets. Pilgrims by the thousands go to St. Peter's, as do tourists, and you can go above the tomb of St. Peter's, and the dome, the glorious dome by Michelangelo, taller than a football field on end, is actually built straight above that tomb of St. Peter. But if you go down and down and down, you actually get to the actual tomb itself, and, of course, the average tourist can't go there, but you went through the hoops arranged it, and they took you down there. What did you see, and was it worth all the trouble? Rick, it was absolutely worth it. It was an ancient first-century cemetery. Uh, They call it a necropolis. And as they were digging a tomb for one of the popes, they broke through into this ancient underground cemetery, began excavating it, and found that it was built around the tomb of St. Peter. How do they know it was St. Peter? They did about 10 years' worth of investigation, and based on all the historical evidence, they concluded with some certainty that it was Peter's tomb. We've we got to remember the Vatican is allowing this excavation, and if the Vatican allowed a study that disproved that it was St. Peter, that would sort of disprove the whole notion of the Vatican being in Rome, right? Correct. So there is a conflict of interest on whoever set out to do this uh, exploration. Francesca, what's your take on the tomb of St. Peter? Well, what I understood is that there is not absolute certainty whether it is Peter himself. As far as I know, there is no absolute proof that he was actually ever in Rome. Certainly, as John says, there is proof of something close to that. So there's bones from that age wrapped with a precious sort of wrapping indicating he was an important guy. But nobody's found anything to disprove it either. Is that your understanding, John? That is correct. The graffiti on the tomb does say, Peter is here. And that was made in 1932. No. No, no, No. a a few centuries before. Yeah, so from early Christian times, people were worshipping there as if it was Peter. That is correct, yes. Francesca, any other insights into the very early Vatican history that we can find as tourists? There is another burial ground that has been recently, in the past year or so, open to the public that's also accessible now. So if you've already seen the Scavi, for example, and you want to continue with something like that, why not look into this other possibility, always accessible through the Vatican itself? John, when you were at the Vatican, did you find that it was well-organized from a tourism point of view? Because there's been kind of a scandal with how long of a line you have to wait to get into the Vatican Museum and so on, and they're working on that. I think they recognize that it's a public relations fiasco to have thousands of people standing in the brutal sun trying to get into the museum. How was your experience? My last trip was in October, towards the end of the season, 
And so I didn't have any trouble whatsoever in getting into the Vatican Museum or into the Vatican itself. You mean St. Peter's um, Basilica? Into the Basilica or even up to the Cupola. Really? That's that's good. That's October. Francesca, there's a new director of tourism at the Vatican, isn't there? Yes, and he was, formerly he was the director of the Uffizi in Florence, so he's bringing that experience to the Vatican. And the Uffizi has been fixed up in the last years, so this is good. And this is the first year where it is possible for individuals to actually make reservations. You can reserve your tickets at the Vatican Museums, but the problem is the lines are always jammed, so for the moment, it's still not working very Telephone well. Telephone lines are jammed, you mean? It, it's just very difficult to actually proceed. I think you can do it online, but it doesn't work. You can't really go through, but they're trying. And so. as a tour guide, you've been able to make reservations for a tour group to skip the line and go in yes. early or something, because yes. there's a window when just tour groups could go in. Well, actually, the way it is now, tour groups and individuals can reserve throughout the day. They have right. it in these slots. And it also, it stays open later, so that's, that's important, too. So this is a too. big improvement. They've just, oh, before, it was, like, ridiculous. It opened from 9 till two or something, yes, right? Yes, absolutely absurd for a museum institution of that level. And so. you know, I, I talked to a lot of people about this who are professional tour guides, and nobody wanted to talk about it because you don't want to get in the bad list of the Vatican. It was a sort of a power that the Vatican has over the tourist industry. And, and here I am because, you know, I, I'm not very sensitive to it, and I got no problem with the Vatican, but just get your act together from tourism point of view. Let these people in. Open the door. This is the patrimony of our civilization in here. 2,000 years of gifts to the Pope. Yes, I mean, treasures it, of the world. Treasures yes. of the world. But nobody would talk to me, frankly, on the record because they didn't want to get in the bad side of the Vatican because the Vatican could then not let you make reservations for the great sites. So I can see Francesca's already <laughs> battering down the hatches here because this might get out. Forgive us, Father, for we know not what we do. We just love the art, right? But if I can say one thing, I mean, uh, John, you've been there, you know. I mean, there are structural problems with the Vatican Museum. Simply, those buildings were not intended. They were not built to uh, welcome millions of visitors each year. So there exactly. are. So for me, the, the only possibility is to keep it open as long as possible. I would like it to be open until open the late afternoon. 7-Eleven, you know, yes. it, it, and people would pay 20 bucks each and they'd be full all the time. There's so much great stuff in that Vatican Museum. John, when you went to St. Peter's, was there a long security line to get into the Basilica? Rick, I was there during a canonization of four new saints, and there were about 60,000 people in the piazza itself, so security was up and running pretty early, but you know, everyone went through the gates and some were wanted, but it moved very quickly. They had probably... Eight ten gates opened, so yeah. it, it moved pretty quick. You know, my best advice for seeing St. Peter's Basilica is simply go early or late. It's open long hours, and you can go at yes, 7 o'clock, and there's only worshipers there at 7 o'clock, and it's a beautiful atmosphere in St. Peter's Basilica early. You go at, at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 2 in the afternoon, it's just inundated with noisy, disrespectful, frankly, tour groups, and it's a whole yes. different thing. Yes, if I can be a little bit more specific on this, I think you're absolutely right. Consider that tour groups are allowed into St. Peter's only from 10 to half past 4. So go before or after, you're all set. That's it. Yes, on Sundays they're just allowed for a couple of hours. So absolutely, it's just, a, as Rick said, it's a matter of timing, either early or later. John, thank the, you for your... The I'm Basilica sorry? at dusk is just gorgeous, too. You know, it's magical late in the afternoon. Yes, it is. And remarkably, it's almost empty at 6 o'clock. You're correct. Oh, man. That is absolutely this correct. Is, and it's, it's one of the most... You know, I did an audio tour to St. Peter's Basilica, where we've got it on our website, by the way. People can just download it on their MP3 player and listen to our guided tour. And I did this whole, what I thought was a great tour, with the help of Francesca and a lot of my friends who are guides in Rome. And then I realized when I tried, when I gave it a test run, I used this audio tour, I had my earplugs in the whole time. And I actually went home and said, no, we've got to re-edit this, take the earplugs out and enjoy the audio of St. <laughs> Peter's Basilica. There's something magic of the sound of people worshiping and pilgrims and the history and the art and the sunbeams coming in and the stray birds that find their way in there and the spirit of Michelangelo and St. Peter and 2,000 years of people coming there. Isn't that why we travel, though, to That's see these things? Exactly. John, you thanks. You really enjoyed St. Peter's, too. Uh, you know, as a Lutheran, I learned a long time ago, check your sword at the door, go in there as a temporary Catholic, <laughs> and, and everything goes much better. <laughs> John, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Okay, Take bye care. now. Yep. Bye now. And Monique's on the line from Haverhill, Massachusetts. Monique, thanks for your call. Hi, nice to talk with you, Rick. Yeah. Do you have any comments or ideas on underground Rome for Francesca? I do. Uh, my husband and I had the interesting experience of renting a room in an Italian man's apartment. 
Um, and he was a wonderful host. And every morning he'd sit down with us over breakfast and set us up with a sightseeing plan complete with bus routes. And one day in the little English that he did speak, which um, I guess he probably used a lot of hand gestures, and I remember him drawing pictures for us, he <laughs> suggested that we visit San Clemente, um, which is a church, essentially three churches built one on top of the other. I think a 12th century, a 4th I think the the bottom level was a Roman apartment with a pagan temple in it, and um, this place came with some interesting stories. There were frescoes in there that depicted some soldiers swearing in Italian, which they're claiming was the first use of um, swears written in the Italian language, and some also claim that Nero played his lyre there while Rome burned. Monica, as soon as you said San Clemente, Francesca gave me a big thumbs up. And uh, I know (laughs) that that's the aficionado's favorite Ah, church because you go down through these, literally through these different levels and you walk from one century to the next to the next on three or four different levels. Francesca took me all the way down to the street level of ancient Rome where it wasn't a church, but it was a neighborhood with a a stream for the water drainage and whatever. Francesca, give us a quick uh, tour of the many levels of San Clemente. See, so San Clemente is the perfect place to really get Rome, this idea of a city being built over itself, always over itself. So as Monique said, you're right. The first church at street level is 12th century. Then you walk down a staircase and you go to the church that was built, well, that was there precedingly, and that was used as a foundation for the one that we have today. That's 4th century. And after that, there is an ancient Roman home from the late 1st century. And if they wanted to, they could go even below that because underneath the last level are practically the remains of the homes in the area that were destroyed during the famous fire of 64 at the time of Nero, the famous fire that Monique referred to that Nero is supposed to have been... In 64 AD? Yes, and they have found actually traces of things that actually show the stains of the fire, the burn, the wow. sign of a burning. So there's more even there's And even the brickwork from those days. But most impressive to me was that Temple of Mithras, right? Mithras. Now, that was a competing religion when Christianity was just a little cult thing. And, yes. and these two religions were going at the same time. And you can look at the bull. That was a big part of the Mithric. Mithras? Yes, of the Mithras religion, because uh, assassinating, killing the bull was the act of creation of the universe. Mithras killed the bull, and by killing the bull, he created the universe. So if you think of where you are, you have Christianity and paganism happening at the same time in the same place, which is extraordinary. Plus, you have uh, two churches above that. At the same level. That's the 2,000 level as you dig down. Practically. 2,000 years old. Well, yes, because uh, apparently the story is that there was a house of a man called Clement in the area that used to allow the neighborhood community to celebrated. From the days, that first generation that Christianity was in Rome Mm -hmm. when the people worshipped in their homes. And some landowner who was, uh, had a strong faith or was bold enough to welcome people would invite Christians into his home and they would have these house churches. Yes, Domus Ecclesia, exactly that. All over Rome you find churches today, big glorious churches that are sitting on the home of that original landowner that welcomed those early Christians to worship. So you see, it's another sign of continuity and tradition. When Christianity does become legal, you build the church. And you come out. You come out of the closet. But you come out from the closet and you practically stay in the area of the closet. So the closet closet. turns into something else. There's a famous one in Trastevere, isn't there? Eh, Yes, in Trastevere, in Santa Cecilia, you can go into this really enormous Roman house, very, very easy to access from the church itself. Monique, thank you for your call. Thank you. San Clemente, that's an inspiration. Now, there's a whole other layer of Roman history, which is Jewish. And there's been a Jewish community in Rome since uh, early Christian times. And there's a small Jewish community that's been there all through those 2,000 years. And we're joined on the phone right now by a friend of mine, Michaela Pavoncello. Her family is from the Jewish community in Rome, and, and Michaela works as a guide in Rome, specifically on the ghetto. Michaela, thanks for joining us. Ciao, Rika. Come stai? Bene, bene. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for letting me join this interesting conversation. I'm learning so much from your guests. Good. Well, let's learn a little bit about the Roman ghetto. Tell me briefly, what is the story of the Jewish community in Rome, and why did they end up there in the bend of the river? Well, I'm sure you know the holiday of Hanukkah, right? Yes, yes. Well, imagine that Hanukkah is this fight between the Maccabees and this Syrian king in Judea at that time in Jerusalem and wanted to introduce his culture and change the habits of the Jews and forbidding the study of the Torah. And so basically the Maccabees came to Rome asking protection to the Romans against uh, 
uh, this king. And that's when the first uh, group of Jews left Jerusalem before the destruction of the temple, when, when the when was big that? diaspora what, started. What century was that, Michaela? We're talking about 160 B.C. A group of Jewish refugees, basically, yeah. left present-day Israel or Palestine, came to mm-hmm. Rome and settled there. What land were they given? Well, they were set in Trastevere at the beginning as all the foreigners and then slowly moved on the other side of the river in the actual ghetto. But the ghetto uh, was not created in the ancient times. It's just an invention of the Renaissance, let's say. It's the result of the Inquisition. Uh, the Pope pulled the fort to decide that it was absurd and inconvenient that Jews and Christians were still living together after what the Jews had done to Christ. And so he decided to choose the worst era of Rome, And today, it's funny, because that area is the most expensive of the city. It's got the same rate as Manhattan. Wow. Yeah. It's it's called gentrification, apparently. And uh, a lot of art galleries, a lot of nice restaurants, a lot of... It's it's, it's a lot going on. It's very vibrant. uh, But still, the Jews gather in the ghetto just to have a kosher meal or to pick up their children in the school or to go to the kosher butcher. So it's very common for us to gather in in the ghetto as we used to do it in the the past, even though we don't live there anymore. And if you're going to visit as a tourist, I imagine you can find some characteristic restaurants, or what what would be a good experience as a tourist if you want to come in and sample the ghetto of Rome? Well, I would spend the whole day eating over there. (laughs) There are a lot of restaurants that mix uh, uh, oriental cooking, so shawarma, falafel, and all this uh, Oriental food with the authentic Roman Jewish food, which is basically the authentic Roman food. Uh, We eat um, a lot of fried things. And a lot of artichokes I saw when I was walking around. That's the common, it's it's our magic dish. We deep fry them, and they are so crispy and delicious. It's a really experience. It's a big experience. Or then you can try uh, some liver, uh, all the, the, all the, poorest parts of the beef of the cow were given to eat to the Jews. So they invented recipes with a lot of fantasy, and they're very tasteful. So this is a beautiful thing. The real estate has become so expensive that a lot of the Jewish community has sold their land and moved away to enjoy the the windfall from selling that property, but they still come back to the ghetto to enjoy the traditional restaurants. The old Jewish ladies actually bring their chairs and set them up on the square to watch the kids come and go from school and and have their gossip and so on. Uh, Michaela Pavoncella, to learn more about Michaela's work, her website is quite easy to find, jewishroma.com, jewishroma.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Rome under the surface. Next, we'll get insider advice from Stefano Loretti. He's a friend who runs Hotel Oceania. It's one of my favorite hotels in Rome. Stefano has lots of tips to help make your visit go more smoothly as you deal with the little cultural complexities that can make enjoying Rome quite a challenge. And we'll get to more of your calls, too, at 877-333-7425. Io sono Lisa Anderson e abito in Nord Italia, in Piemonte, E io viaggio con Rick Steves. That's Italian for my name is Lisa Anderson, and I live in northern Italy in the region of Piemonte, Piedmont, and I travel with Rick Steves. Io sono Lisa Anderson, di Nord Italia, io abito in Piemonte, e io viaggio con Rick Steves. Grazie. Grazie a te. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Rome. We've been underground with Francesca Caruso, and now we're going to go overground a little bit. Joining us on the phone from a a hotel that he runs is uh, Stefano Loretti. Stefano, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Thank you for calling me. I'm afraid because I don't have the same English of Francesca, but I hope to to be helped from from her. Well, you've you've been a big help for uh, almost all of your adult life working in what was your father's hotel, right? Uh, yeah, my family started my hotel in 1975. So this is Hotel Oceania. How many rooms do you have in your hotel? 
Oh, we started with nine rooms, just nine rooms, but now we have 19. So we have been lucky in our working after 34 years now. So you're in a big, a, a giant, a sort of a classic Roman building, and when an apartment becomes available and somebody moves out or whatever, you can rent yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. This is exactly what we, you know, everyone who runs a small hotel tried to do during these years, to taking another small apartment in the same floor for having the chance to grow up and give more space for the people. What I would like to do is to have my staff being, you know, like in a home, in an apartment. You know, maybe you are more used to a bed breakfast, to this kind of service. Yeah, you're more like what we would expect in a bed and breakfast. When you're dealing with people communicating, I would imagine most of the tourists will communicate with you with email and no longer using a fax. When I started to have my family, that, that was about 15 years ago, main way to communicate was faxes. And I uh, was fighting with my father about that because, you know, he was pushing me to using fax instead of on lasting my time on computers. But now, of course, it, this gave the chance to the single travelers to searching from themselves uh, uh, the, the best choice that fit the needs. Stefano, these days, many people will use booking services on the Internet to make a hotel reservation. And I understand that that costs the hotel around 20%. Is that good for you or a problem for you? It comes from, from 10 to, to 30%. 10 to 30% commission to, to the web booking service. Is it better for you if people go direct to you or would you Absolutely. just... Absolutely. It's better also for them because they can have better prices from, from the hotels unless they are not going to big hotels that have so much rooms to sell so they can give special prices. But uh, at this point, this is not my, my business. My okay, show. so to clarify that, big hotels can give you a better deal if you book through a booking service because they've got endless rooms and they'll put them on the push list and they can suffer the commission to the web booking service and still give a good price. But if you're looking for a boutique hotel, these people have to pay 10 to 30% to get a booking through a booking service. Yeah. And as a consumer, if you go direct to the little boutique hotel, you can get the net price and you get rid of the middleman and potentially you will get a better price and the hotel will make more money. <laughs> that's possible. Too. Is that true? <laughs> that's true, absolutely. Okay, yeah. good. So that's, I wanted to clarify that because the web booking service is bringing a whole new dynamic to how uh, small hotels sell rooms. In, in Italy now, everything is smoke-free, hotels and restaurants? Um, yeah, it, I think it's three years that it's not possible to smoke inside on public area. Now, I and see many Italian hotels that have their no-smoking sign and then oh, sitting the, on... We had this kind of thing for many, many, many years because uh, it's a problem for us to give to the next clients a good quality of atmosphere if someone is going to smoke in advance, you know. For me, it's a problem because I like cigars, but yeah, yeah. my staff doesn't allow me to, to smoke in Oh, so it's a no-smoking for Stefano, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I, in many hotels, I see the no-smoking sign, and sitting on top of the no-smoking sign is an ashtray. <laughs> Yo, you know, we, we have a, an outside space, and in, in this outside space, you can find, you know, the ones who want to keep this tradition, which is not good for the health, but, uh, you know. Italians like their cigarettes, I think. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Stefano Loretti, who runs a little hotel called Hotel Oceania. His website, hotelosiania.it. That's O-C-E-A-N-I-A dot I-T. Fred's on the line in Westminster, Maryland. Fred, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for having me on. Yeah, do you have a question or a comment for Stefano or Francesca? Well, I had a question about uh, taxis in Rome. I've always found them to be very mystifying. Um, as I understand it, you can't really hail them on the street. So you have to have like your hotel or restaurant or whatever call them for you. I was uh, catching a flight back to the U.S. Um, I had my hotel call and get me a taxi. And my wife and I get up early in the morning. We got a taxi to come like 5 a.m. because we were catching like a 7.30 flight back to the U.S. And um, I, I come out and I see a very well-dressed man in a suit. And he has like an earpiece hooked up to a cell phone. And Apparently, he's the taxi driver, and so I think, oh, well, uh, I guess driving a taxi is, is kind of more of a profession over here than in the U.S., and so he carries our bags downstairs for us, and then I realize that he's starting to put our bags into an uh, old, beat-up car that's obviously not a taxi, and then I see a man across the street who has an official taxi, and he's standing there waiting for us. So somehow this, this man found out that we were waiting for a taxi, and got our bags, and I wrestled the bags off of him and, and you know, got them. Wow. We, we got into the official taxi, but I don't have any idea how that happened, how he 
knew what was going on because it was 5 a.m. It's not like it was a, yeah. a time that there would be a lot of tourists out. Um, you know, so so that, that's my only bad experience I ever had in Europe. With, well, let's get some advice from Rome. let's get some advice from Stefano on taxis for his clients. Stefano, what do you tell people about taxis in Rome? I, I need to be honest. Taxis are all over in the world, almost the same. You know, it happened to me in New York. Some bad experience. Taxi driver didn't want to switch on the meter, so it happens also in uh, in Rome. You know, I, I need to say that during the last two years, they have changed the rates uh, from the airport to the center of the city, which is a fixed price of 40 euro. And this is a great service, I think, because it's 35 kilometers about from, from the center and of the city. And does that work going out to the airport the same? It's the same. If you start from the center of the city inside of Aurelian okay. Walls, is still 40 euro arriving there. You don't have to pay an extra charge for the luggage. So this is a very good thing, by the way, when you're coming into the city or leaving the city, anything within the Roman walls, it's 40 euros flat, including your uh, luggage and tip and everything, if you like. That's a reliable, what's that, about $55 or something like this. Uh, You have to be careful of these taxis. I've had many different con games on me. I give a guy a 20-euro bill, and he drops it, and he picks up a 10-euro bill because he wants to switch that on me, and he pretends that I gave him a 10-euro bill. You've got to be on the ball when you get a taxi. I find that you can hail a taxi on the street, and when you're frustrated by that, you ask for a taxi stand. Francesca? Yes, that's that's the point. Uh, By law, you cannot hail them if they are in the vicinity of a taxi stand. So if you're in an area where there are none, absolutely. And if you're frustrated because you wave at a bunch of empty taxis and none of them stop, it's because you're one block away from a taxi stand and they would be breaking the law to stop. So you ask at a merchant nearby, where, how do you say where is a taxi stand? Dov'è la fermata del taxi? Or just say, dove, where, taxi. Dove taxi? Mm-hmm. If you want to be fancy, dove la fermata, fermata dei de taxi? Taxi. Si, fermata is the stand. Oh, fermata, stop. Huh? Fermata, so, yeah. stop. Mm-hmm. Taxi stop. Okay. Stefano, any other tips on taxis? And, uh, I think the experience uh, that this person had was an experience that is uh, linked with what was going on with the taxi out to the airports before these new rules of the 40 euro. Yeah. You know, one, trying to preserving clients was using a different kind of service, which, which was private cards. They was used to give some tip to the, you know, to the doorman or someone in the hotel, and that's why he has been called, I think. Okay, but so the, the hotels... no reason, I think, to, to use this private card. Hotels work with private cars. Somebody asks for a taxi. The, the hotel will likely have a friend who has a private car that gives them a kickback to give them the business rather than the taxi. Yes. All right, Fred, thanks for your call. Thank you. Erin is on the line in Oaks, Pennsylvania. Erin, thanks Rick. for your call. I wanted to ask you, uh, my boyfriend and I are going to be uh, renting an apartment near the Piazza Navona, and we wanted to be able to shop around and cook food. Um, that's the main reason that we got an apartment. And so I wanted to get some tips for food shopping, like maybe some good places, or maybe if there are some kind of procedures or etiquette for buying food there. Well, this is a a growing concern for travelers all over Europe as they go for the apartments that come with a little kitchenette, and you can settle in for a few days and actually go to the markets and stock your pantry. Francesca, what advice would you give to somebody who has their own kitchen in Rome? Feel free to explore. If you're staying near Piazza Navona, you have the market of the Campo de Fiori for all the fruit, vegetable, cold cuts, bread, cheese that you could possibly want. And there are also supermarkets around uh, the place where you're staying. So just feel free to ask anybody and just experiment. You go to the market, you just point to what you want, you say how much and try it. It's, there's no etiquette. And it's I, I, I would say you've got your supermarkets nearby, but boy, what a lost opportunity if you could go to an open-air market and every neighborhood yeah. has a market. Our son was just studying in Rome for a semester out past the Vatican, and he had his market, and he, he realized the reality of eating on a student's budget, and he would go to the market, and he made friends with the merchants that he would routinely come and buy his vegetables from or his chicken or whatever, and they became friends with him and great chance to you know work on your language and uh, live for the cost of what a Roman lives for while you're in Rome. Stefano, any advice? No, for... Rick, I, I, if, I, if I can interrupt you, you know, this is a, a great thing to find, uh, a market, you know, a supermarket, which is, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say American style, but maybe this is the starting point, you know, has changed also the way to buy food in a, in a town like Rome. And um, this is, a, this is a, a problem to me, because as your son experienced, this is a way to meet culture, it's a way to change uh, something that you will miss if you are going to a supermarket where no one is taking care of you. Maybe you, you save, uh, you know, $2 at the end. So this yeah. is uh, 
something you lost if you are traveling. So, Aaron, I think the point is uh, take it as a blessing that you need to go down to the market like the local people. You don't have a big freezer in the garage to stock up from a trip to the, <laughs> the giant big box store and uh, get to know the people, and that's just as important as some of the uh, ancient sites. Good luck, Aaron. Great, thank you. You bet. Patricia from Cambria, California, emails us. She'll be traveling to Rome and has a unlocked GSM cell phone. Can she easily buy an Italian SIM card upon arrival? Uh, Francesca, do you know anything about that? I'm uh, I'm afraid that's not my area of expertise. You, you know all about the, the, <laughs> Give uh, me a wax tablet or a slab of marble. But okay, <laughs> Stefano, are you better with cell phones than... Uh, than no, I had some experience of guests who had the chance to buy easily another SIM card for using in Italy. It was not so easy two or three years ago, because you had to give a lot of documents and a waiting time for being ready to make calls. Now it's, it's almost easy. Just going to a shop who sells a SIM card, you can buy one and using immediately with a prepaid system. So if, you're, if your phone is unlocked, you go to Italy, you buy a local SIM card, you change over the bandwidth or whatever so it works in Europe, and it should work. That's your experience, Stefano? Yes, of course. So the regulations are loosening up. I have in the past had to have my passport with me or a European yeah. who will buy the SIM card with me for security purposes because they want to know which terrorists are buying cell, <laughs> you know, SIM cards, I guess, so they use <laughs> their cell true, phones. Is that, I, is that loosening up now? I had this kind of experience uh, recently, Rick. I, I was telling to a man that he was needing for documents, everything, uh, to show who he was right. for security problem. And I was surprised to discover that it's not true. You have the chance to buy it. It used to be that way. It's loosening up now. Stefano, I know in the past in Italy they've had strict regulations on nobody can use the Internet without giving their passport number with the hotelier. Is that still the case? You know, I have my internet point open. I don't, uh, I don't have any kind of uh, or restrict uh, system for my guests. The authorities are not strict on that with your hotel, Francesca. Yeah. But if you go to an internet point around town, I think it would be best to have ID with you because they do ask. There still is that Even concern. in my neighborhood, they They're ask. tracking the internet use so they know... The internet services, I think, yes. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with two Romans, Francesca Caruso, who's a tour guide, and Stefano Lorette, who runs a hotel called Hotel Oceania. Stefano, what's new with the music scene? I know that you enjoy music. If a tourist is coming to Rome, how, how can we connect with the music scene? Yeah, you know, Rick, uh, I love music. And um, we have a great space now, which is the auditorium. It's uh, almost three years. Huh? It's a great space, really. It's been projected by Renzo Piano. He's one of the greatest Italian architects. And uh, you can enjoy classical music, jazz, uh, and, uh, and pop music. Every evening there is something on. Wow. And they have a great organization. The space is beautiful. And it's something I, you know, I recommend to someone who comes to Rome. Like also the, what we call the Casa del Jazz, the House of Jazz, which uh, has been uh, dedicated on public area uh, after has been uh, transformed from houses of crime, of mafia. And there's been a law who gave the chance to use this space as public area. Now we have a house of cinema, house of jazz, and this is a great thing to Rome. And on summer period, there is the Estate Romana, which gave the chance to open the most important gardens to meeting, to shows, to whatever else you can have in the summer. And this is great for a tourist. And I think it's a great way to lead the city in the night. Yeah. So this is a people's revolution for live musical entertainment in the evening. Francesca, tell me about the auditorium. Where is it and what kind of a venue is it? Uh, the auditorium is very easy to get to from the Piazza del Popolo Flaminio stop on the Metro A. There's a little tram that goes by there. So it's north of the city and when you go to any tourist information uh, center, ask for the auditorium program. Is that a new building built for this, or is it a historic yes. building? No, it's it's modern. It's uh, absolutely contemporary wow. architecture. And it's, it's affordable best. and easily accessible yes. for yes. locals as well as And tourists. it's also a nice place to spend time. You can even go for a drink and a concert, dinner and a concert. It's becoming a new place for the Romans to congregate. And it's we really didn't have this in the yeah. past. Yes, I agree, Stefano. Stefano, <laughs> you, you, me, and Francesca will head out to the auditorium next time I'm in Rome, okay? I, I will be happy. That would be great. <laughs> Jennifer is on the line in Campbell, California. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me on. You bet. What's your thought or comment for Stefano and Francesca? More a comment. About two years ago, Don's Rome trip, we did a walking tour of the area and then ended up at one of our guys' favorite restaurants. I honestly don't remember the name, but I remember it was near Campo di Fiore. We'd seen a lot of the construction in Rome and were able to look down and see the old street level from 2,000 years ago and get kind of a sense of how much has been built up on the ancient city of Rome. But it really all came to uh, head at this dinner 
which was this lovely little restaurant run by this older couple. I think it had been in his family for generations. And um, as we're finishing up, the guide mentioned that, oh, by the way, this restaurant is built over one of the entrances to the theater where Caesar was killed. And just casually, and two of us were history majors on the trip, and we looked at each other and said, you know this is the Ides of March, right? This is March 15th. So we, <laughs> <How> wonderful! <laughs> it was so amazing. And then it got even better because the food was amazing. But after dinner, as the crowd thinned out, the table near the entrance to the cellar was empty. And we got to go downstairs and see one of the entrances to the forum where Caesar had been killed. Wow. So this restaurant is actually built on the spot within the arches of within- the theater. Yeah, they had the little refrigerator downstairs between the arches. <laughs> in, the, in the foundation of the theater where Caesar was killed. What's the name of that restaurant? Does anybody I, know? I think it's Costanza. Costanza. Mm. Stefano, do you know Restaurante Costanza? Yeah, Rick. We discovered together, I think, one day. <laughs> <laughs> We've been there. And boy, I love it when the when the humble mom and pop that run the place and things are quieting down and the customers yeah, are Yeah, we couldn't believe. I remember the moment, yeah. <laughs> they, say, they say, come with me, I want to show you something. And it's just like they pull out all their greatest tricks. And that's what Rome's so great about. I mean, good food, small businesses, and let's go downstairs. It happens to be the Ides of March, and I want to show you where Caesar was assassinated. I mean, it is exciting when you get in to living in Rome and its history and art at the same time. Jennifer, thanks so much for your call, and what a great way to cap off our discussion of Rome. Yeah, thank you so much, Rick. Happy travels. Ciao. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I want to thank Francesca Caruso, who is a wonderful tour guide in Rome, and Stefano Loretti from Hotel Oceania. Thank you both for helping us better understand your great city. Thank you, Rick. Thanks to you, Rick. Thanks to Francesca. Hey. And, and remember, we have a date at the uh, <laughs> auditorium, right? Absolutely. I will buy the tickets. <laughs> okay, seven on Ciao. Ciao. <laughs> Goodbye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Italy and beyond, one small group at a time. For example, just for Italy... You can choose from 10 exciting itineraries. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.